0: I love avocados. We eat a whole lot of them at our house, and so we buy them in bulk, tons of them. And we can't eat them as fast as they go bad. In fact, one of the most frustrating things is when I wake up in the morning, I go into the kitchen, and I'm looking for an avocado to cut it open, to slice it up, and to throw it on top of my omelet, and I grab an avocado, it looks great, right? Looks great. I touch it, squeeze it, right texture. And then I cut it open, and it's filled with brown spots on the inside. And I go like, oh, man. So I throw it aside. I reach out for another one. Open it up. Same way. Toss it aside. Reach out for another one. Open it up. Same way. And now I'm angry. Now I'm angry because I'm not going to have my eggs with avocados. And if I pick the good parts from the bad parts, it's going to take a lot of time. So I take all those avocados, and I now have to... Throw it in the trash. What a waste. What a waste of money. What a waste of time. It is absolutely frustrating. Last week, we started this new sermon series on the book of Romans. And in the first section, the Apostle Paul talks about the gospel, the good news of Jesus that he has been called to proclaim in the Greco-Roman world of his days. And he talks about how he is not ashamed of this message because it is the power of God to save anyone who believes. Last week, we looked at the what of the gospel. What is the gospel? We talked about that. Why is it power? Today, we're going to talk about why we need it, why everyone must experience this dynamus the power of the gospel in their own lives, why you need it, why you need to experience it, why is it important that We receive and believe in the message of the gospel. Like the avocados, human beings look really good on the outside. Sometimes they feel good, the texture, if you're to squeeze it. But if you're to open it up, it's filled with brown spots. The Bible says that there hasn't been one part of our humanity that hasn't been touched and marred by sin. Now, that does not go to say that we have lost the image of God in us when we have sinned, but that the image of God now is distorted in us, and that we are a mixture of both good and evil. But every single faculty of ours has a brown spot. It has been touched and marred by sin. Look at what the Apostle Paul writes Here in Romans 1, we're going to read from verses 18 through 25. So would you follow along with me? He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worship and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And The whole people of God watching at home or at church said, amen. This is the word of the Lord. In this passage, the Apostle Paul reveals to us three very important things. Number one, he talks about the heart of sin. Secondly, he talks about the trap of sin. And then lastly, he reveals to us the hope for sin. First, let's look at the heart of sin. What's at the heart of sin? At the heart of sin, there is a darkened heart. That's what the Apostle Paul writes in verse 21, is it? That at the heart of sin, there is the darkened heart of humanity. See, at the root, sin is both vertical and horizontal disregard. Let me say that again. At its root, sin is both vertical and horizontal disregard. Let's go back to verse 18, which was the very first verse that we read. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, listen to this, the first word, ungodliness. And then the second word, and unrighteousness of men. The Apostle Paul uses two words here. To define sin, the first word is ungodliness. What is ungodliness? Is sin seen on a vertical perspective. Disregard for God and for that which God is entitled to, which is worship. And then he uses a second word, unrighteousness, which is disregard for creation. Disregard for humankind. Ungodliness which is vertical disregard, comes before unrighteousness, which is horizontal disregard. In fact, it is disregard for God that causes disregard for the rest of creation, for humanity. That's what's at the root of sin. Now, what does it mean to disregard God? It's to live as if he does not exist acknowledging that he exists, knowing that he exists, yet living as if he does not exist. I don't know if you had a friend or or an ex-friend or maybe a frenemy or uh, an ex-partner of yours that has come to you at one point because of a conflict and has said to you, from now on, you are dead to me. Have you ever said those words to somebody? You are dead to me. If someone has said these words to you, or if you've ever said these words to somebody, what you mean is, I know that you exist, but I'm going to live my life as if you did not exist. That's what it means to disregard God. It means, as he says here, still in verse 18, to suppress the truth about the fact that there is a God that we are... Uh, completely dependent of and completely accountable to. It's to live suppressing that truth that there's a God that exists that we are dependent to and at the same time we are accountable to. That's what sin does to us. Now, when I read this passage uh, several years ago, and I wrestled with the truths of this passage. I always thought that what he says here in verses 19 and 20 were very anti-climatic. Really, is that the problem that God really has with humanity? Is that what lights up His wrath—the fact that we live as if He does not exist, that we don't give Him thanks? Is that really the problem, the real problem of humanity? That we just don't give thanks, acknowledge and give thanks to God? (laughs) I thought to myself, does God have a problem with our bad manners? Is that the real issue about us, just bad manners? Let's think about this. What is plagiarism? Plagiarism is not giving thanks, not acknowledging someone's work. In fact, taking credit for that person's work. In our world, in our culture, we punish plagiarism in a very severe way, right? It is called IP theft. That's what we call plagiarism, IP theft. It is a horrible thing to do. And yet, that's how humanity, that's how we live our lives as sinful human beings. We breathe God's air. We extract knowledge from that which he has created. We delight in the people and the relationships that he's allowed us to be in. We taste and see the beautiful things all around us. We profit from his world. And yet, we fail to acknowledge him and to give him thanks. That is what it means to disregard God. And what the Bible says is that even though we may think, listen, pastor, people don't know any better. There's a lot of people that don't know this truth. A lot of people don't know that God exists or they may, nobody has shared that with them. And Paul says in verse 20, they are without excuse. Why? Look, let's go back to verse 20. For... His invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What is he saying? He said, uh, God created in the human heart, embedded, sorry, embedded in the human heart, the knowledge of himself. Okay? This is what... Uh, He says here, as he refers to invisible attributes. Every human heart is born, is created with that truth imprinted in it. And on top of that, all of nature, as we looked a couple weeks ago in our sermon about the care of creation, the love of creation. All of creation, Psalm 19.1, reveals and teaches us about the being of God. Everywhere we look, we see the beauty, the goodness, and the truth about God. And while that revelation is not enough for salvation, it is enough for condemnation. Humans are without excuse because the knowledge of God is embedded in them, and it's an imprint, is embedded in the rest of creation. Now, when... This disregard for God grows and matures and develops in us. It leads to a second problem, which is the worship of false gods, the worship of false gods. See, what happens, look, what happens when people refuse to worship God? When they say, I am not going to acknowledge this God, I am not accountable to him, my life is free when people refuse to worship the God of the Bible, what happens as a consequence? Do they stop worshiping? No, they do not stop worshiping. What happens is that they change their worship. Why? Because we were created for worship. See, we cannot help but to worship. And so if you're not worshiping the true God, you're worshiping something else. You're worshiping A created thing versus the creator. That's what the Apostle Paul says here. There's this interesting quote from atheistic philosopher and writer, novelist, David Foster Wallace. He said these words in a speech uh, before he actually passed away. He says, there is actually no such thing as atheism as an atheist, and he goes on to explain, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And then in that speech, he goes on to say how many of us worship image and how many of us worship career and work and how many of us also worship money. He goes on, he says, we all know this stuff already. This is clear to us. We're just not honest about it, right? He says, it's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, The skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. See, the problem is that we forget. But that is the truth. You may deny it, that you're not a worshiper, but you are a worshiper of something or someone. You are what the Apostle Paul writes and describes here in verse 23. Look, You have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, this is what the Bible teaches about idolatry. Idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is taking a good thing and making it a God, small g, thing, right? That's what idolatry is. So, Is work bad? No, work is actually really good. Is romance bad? No, actually romance is really good. Is money bad? No, money is not bad. Money is very good. Is sex bad? Sex is amazing. It's great. But there's always the potential of taking some of the good gifts of God that he has given us to delight in in order to connect us back to him. Gifts that reveal to us His goodness and His beauty and His truth, and making that our God itself. See, if you are to do that, or when we do that, because we all do that, John Calvin, the French reformer, used to say that the human heart is a factory of idols. It's constantly producing gods. That's what a sinful heart does. It produces false gods, so that it may build its identity around it. It looks at these things for its ultimate purpose and ultimate joy. And when you and I do that, because we do, right, it becomes a pivotal point for our lives' destruction and downfall. See, what keeps us down, what fills our hearts with anxiety and guilt and fear and anger is the fact that we have invested all of our hopes and things that were not made to be worshipped. And therefore, that which we look in the Creator, that we should look in the Creator Himself for our sense of meaning and joy and satisfaction. We will always be hungry. We will always be thirsty. We will always go wanting because these things can't give us the things that only God can give. That is the reason for our miseries in life. You see, let me just develop a little bit more on this. What is anxiety? Anxiety is idolatry mapped into the future. Looking at these hopes that you have established, and say, and saying, if I have these things, I will be somebody. I will find purpose and joy and meaning in life. And therefore, when things get hard and you're not moving in the right direction or things are not moving fast enough towards your ultimate heart's desire, you begin to experience anxiety in life. What is guilt? Guilt is idolatry mapped out into the past. That you have failed those gods, small g's, that you have worshipped. You have disappointed them. You have come short. And now you can't move on with life because you feel extremely guilty. You carry that guilt of the idols that you have failed. And they are very good at reminding you that you have failed. (laughs) They crush you when you fail. There's no forgiveness. Your career won't forgive you. Your image will not forgive you. Why? Because you're going to get, going to get old. <laughs> it will not forgive you. Time won't forgive you. If you, if you uh, overprotect your children, you will crush them, and in that same vein, you will feel crushed by the fact that you were not the parent that you wanted to be. And what is anger? Anger. Anger is idolatry mapped out into the present because the circumstances are not going your way because things are not going your way. See, idolatry is the source for all the miseries that we have in life. Idolatry turns us into addicts. It, it, it weaves an illusional field around us. And that's why the Bible says here, that's why the Apostle Paul Says here uh, in in verse twenty one that uh, somebody that worships idols or idolaters in our in our case here are uh, foolish. They're fools, and their hearts are darkened because they cannot perceive reality. They're not self aware. They're in denial. See, an idolater is someone that lives in denial. Think about an addict. He says, oh, no, (laughs) I can can control the alcohol. I'm just going to have one or two drinks, and and then I'm going to stop. He doesn't know the extent of his problem. He forgets that he is in control. Everyone around that person knows this person is living in illusion if he thinks that he can control himself if he takes the first drink, right? He's in denial. He lives in an illusion, And in the same way, that's what our idols do to us. That's what a life that has reoriented its worship away from God and into things, away from the Creator and into creation. It's a life filled with misery. It's a life lived in illusion. It's a foolish life. It's a darkened heart. And that lights up God's wrath. That's what the text says. How does it start? For the wrath of God is revealed. God's wrath is lit up when he sees these creatures that he has created in his own image to live in joy and in freedom in the worship of him. Living such miserable lives. Away from its purpose, away from our purpose, away from our design. Kind of like me, you know, with the avocados. I gotta throw all these away. It angers me that I'm wasting all of those resources, throwing them into the trash. See, that lits up the wrath of God because God looks and he thinks, oh man, what a waste. I've put so much energy into this. What a waste. And that leads us, obviously, to the second point, which is the trap of sin. The trap of sin. See, uh, the, the apostle Paul goes on to say in verse 24, read it with me. He says, therefore, because of all of this, because of our disregard for God, because of our worship of false gods, because of our situation and our enslavement, In verse 24, he writes, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. What does God do in response to these choices that we have made? The worst thing and the most just thing that God can do in relation to this problem is to give ourselves up to our desires, is to surrender ourselves, our lives, to our own enemies, to give us up to our own enemies. Oscar Wilde used to say that uh, when the gods want to punish us, they answer our prayers. And it reminds me also what C.S. Lewis said used to say, C.S. Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. See, hell is a choice that we make every day. What is hell? Hell is the space and the place outside or away from the presence of God. Hell is the place that we find ourselves when we are given to our own desires, to that which we have looked away from God and to for our source of life, significance, joy, and meaning. Let me give you a few examples here. Have you ever seen people that you know that have lost their family, their marriages, have lost their health because of overworking. They are literally living in hell because they've made their careers or their work the most important thing. And while they achieved success in their business, they lost everything else and they live in misery. Have you ever seen people, maybe people that you know, that live and exist in these super unhealthy, abusive, codependent relationships. And they can't walk away from these abusive relationships because they look at that person that they are in a relationship with for their ultimate source of love and affirmation. And they can't walk away from that. Even though they're abused every day, they've been given up to their desires to the false gods that they worship. Have you ever ever seen somebody have their lives completely destroyed because they have given themselves to substance abuse you have? I mean, today you heard a story about that in the giving section. To be given to your false gods to your false masters is a horrible and a terrible thing. See, if you give yourself to God, he will take care of you because Jesus is a great master. But if you give yourself to any other God, they will crush you. They will always demand more from you and you will live in literal hell. That is the trap of our idolatry. In the pursuit of joy, in the pursuit of meaning, in the pursuit of freedom, we end up miserable and enslaved. But the story doesn't end here, right? Because we're still yet to talk about the hope for sin. What is the hope for sin in this passage? Paul gives us a clue in the very last verse. Let's go back to the very last verse. I'm going to read the whole verse. Because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worship and served the creature rather than the creator. And then he says, Who is blessed forever. In other translations, it reads, uh, The creator who is forever to be praised. See, the clue that the Apostle Paul gives us is that freedom the return to our purpose where we're able to find joy and experience freedom is found in the praise of God. Praise, see, praise is what takes off the lid in our lives that suppresses the truth about our Creator and unleashes, it, it unleashes us into a reality of freedom. See praise is what al- allows our hearts to reorbit ourselves around the truth, the beauty and the goodness of God. That's what praise does to us. See praise ultimately sets us free. Because if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that gives us also the clue of how to do that. Because maybe up to this point, you're asking me, okay, pastor, I understand that the hope for sin is to praise God. That's what removes the lid of what suppresses the truth about him. That's what fully liberates us, is the worship of God. But isn't that the problem to begin with? that we sinful human beings who have been marred and touched by sin at the root we are unable naturally to acknowledge this God that we are dependent and accountable to isn't that the problem yes that's a very that's a very very good point but here is here's how you do it here's how you're able to do it here is how you're able to overcome Your sinful nature that is naturally bent away from God and towards self. See, the clue here is found in the beginning of the chapter. Remember the passage that we read last week? That Jesus is the one who is both God and righteous See, God's problem with us is ungodliness and unrighteousness, but Jesus is the one who is both God and righteousness. And Jesus, who is both God and righteous, when he took on flesh and he lived life among us 2,000 years ago, even though he was God, he never failed to give credit and praise In acknowledgement to the Father. He would always attribute his work to the work of the Father. His leading to the leading of the Spirit of God who he was one with, with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus lived a life of praise and he lived a life of worship. Why did he do that? He lived this life of praise and worship for us in our place. And instead of receiving the joy that comes with the praise of God, Jesus on the cross experienced pain and suffering in a way that we cannot comprehend and understand. Because on the cross, the wrath of God that Paul talks about here in verse 18 is being unleashed upon Jesus on the cross. The wrath that we ungodly and unrighteous people deserve. The one who is God himself and who is righteous is receiving the punishment that we deserve. The wrath of God is descending full force upon him. Why? So that God would, instead of giving us disapproval, we would receive his praise. You know, one of the uh, most beautiful things that we read in the Bible is that God sings over us, that God loves us, and that God says praises to us in the same way that he praised his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, the Father says the same thing about you. What a grace that instead of receiving wrath, We now receive praise because of Jesus. And it's to the degree that you dwell on this truth. It's to the degree that your heart experiences this power, which is the gospel. That's what the gospel is. That's why it's power to save. It's to the degree that you experience that, that you will give praise to the one that gave up his life for you. And so today, let's close with praise. Stand up right now, where you are, in church or outside, and give praise to the one who has given his life for you. That is the hope for sin. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for that which Jesus Christ has done for us. And today we give Him praise for that. We give Him praise for that. Father, we no longer want to live our lives without acknowledging our dependence to You, without being accountable to You. Uh, Father, we don't want to live entrapped by the power of our idols. We want to be set free, set us free today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you want to experience freedom in your life in light of everything that was said, I want you today to let us know. Maybe you need to experience freedom in your finances. Maybe maybe you need to experience freedom in your relationships. Maybe you need to experience freedom from some sort of addiction that is crushing and destroying your life. And we want to come alongside and pray with you and pray for you. So if you leave a comment in the comment section or if you fill out the form that's linked in the comment section, we will get back to you and we will come alongside you so that you will experience all of the freedom that Jesus has come to deliver and bring to you. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.